So welcome everybody to our podcast series, Leading in a Climate Changed World. Today, it is a great pleasure to be talking to Jonathan Gosling. Jonathan is Emeritus Professor of Leadership at the University of Exeter, engaged with several initiatives around the world aiming to encourage responsible leadership. In the UK, he is lead faculty with the Forward Institute, which aims to enhance the contribution of an enlightened elite in the nation's most influential large organizations. Jonathan also supports teams in frontline health services across Southern Africa, as they find inventive ways to respond to emerging challenges, including those brought about by climate change. He was co-founder of the One Planet MBA and has researched how societies cope with imminent collapse. He is currently planning a one-week workshop on implications for initiative takers in Bristol in April 2020, and also a reading and writing retreat on spirituality in times of collapse. So huge welcome to you, Jonathan. Good to be with you. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. And we were just having a little pre-conversation. I was very interested in, in, in one or two of the tales that brought you into this work around societal collapse and, and your experience of research that, that uh, initiated at least some of your interest in this. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that, what brought you into this field. Well, I'd been working for quite a while in management and business education, leadership education, and uh, I, I did a little bit of work with some old friends and colleagues at Worldwide Fund for Nature, WWF International, on their strategy around their One Planet Leaders program, as they called it. Um, and one part of the uh, emerging sort of conclusions from that work was that we should try to develop um, management education, perhaps a new norm for management education that uh, would require all courses and particularly MBAs to be cognizant, to admit, as it were, and the assumption that we have only one planet, which sounds rather ordinary thing to do. Uh, but when you then subject an awful lot of what's taught on business programs, it really doesn't hold up to that assumption. By and large, uh, what's taught in terms of economics, in terms of business policy, in terms of theory of the firm, marketing practices, consumer studies, and so on, all sort of assume, when you question it, that we have potentially two or three planets worth of resources both in terms of the sources of resource and what happens to waste and things um and so as i started saying this in in deans and directors meetings and the various accreditation agencies and so on uh people you know, clearly thought well it's a very sensible thing to do to assume that we have only one planet but on the other hand it's really difficult to change what we're teaching and uh, view of what we're doing in the change what turns out to be a fundamental lunacy at the heart of business education and um, so I, I found rather than uh, bringing a, a sort of candle of clarity to my field I was setting up quite a lot of anxiety and uh, and resistance and um, uh, and and so I, of course, anyway, employed as an academic, was found myself researching things and trying to figure out 
uh, what's important to look at in the field of leadership. Um, and one of the things I started looking at was trying to understand the sh what I saw as a shift in particularly the UK and Western Europe that around our attitudes to authority and uh, to the possibilities of change, the kind of futures that people look to that came up around 2014, 2015 um, in particular, which is when the refugee crisis, so-called, uh, was at its height and people were moving out of uh, Syria in particular and other parts of the Levant at, a, at very large numbers. Um, and uh, and so I, I, I just got kind of curious about how this was affecting people's attitudes to politics and attitudes to leadership, to authority, what they expected of their leaders. Uh, and um, I really had started to have a look to see, well, what's, what's lying behind this... Um, this refugee crisis. I, I, we, of course, we'd heard a lot about ISIS and about uh, the breakdown in the Syrian um, sort of body politic and other parts of that region for a long time. And I asked a, a research assistant, I had a very competent, uh, a qualitatively competent research assistant at the time, to go and look for the uh, rainwater um, figures for the last 10 years uh, in, in the Levant. Uh, and she went away and came back a few days later and said, I can't find any. I said, well, that's ridiculous. There must be some. Uh, and she looked again. And then eventually we went to the Met Office, who are based here in Exeter, um, and, and colleagues who work for them. And they confirmed that there really aren't uh, figures for, for that part of the world at that time. Uh, I thought, why not? Well, of course, the answer was very simple, that it had been such a bad drought for about eight years by then that... Uh, farmers and villagers and people living across the region had simply run out of energy and uh, motivation to keep recording the weather stations. So uh, there's actually a, a hole in the data, a gap in the data that corresponds with the collapse in agriculture and the way of life there. And, and of course, what we know now is that from around 2011 onwards, vast numbers of people were moving off the land because they couldn't survive anymore there, moving into Aleppo and Homs and Damascus and so on. And those cities simply couldn't cope with the extra numbers. And this really gave rise to the intensification of the, of the, uh, the collapse of the city, uh, of the state. And... Um, uh, and I then started started looking uh, at what's happening around the patterns of migration from that. Where were people going, and what was the response to where they went? Is that is that uh, particularly climate related migration or migration patterns in general? Well, you see, you can't really pull those across, pull those apart, because you know, as uh, a place becomes under, people become so hungry things fall apart right generally and if you had a really robust state with plenty of money with an industries that could trade and buy food where it's needed and import water and you had uh, public officials who were trusted and 
and uh, able to organize a system that could organize relief and all those things where you have a, a robust functioning state you are of course more resilient to those kinds of pressures but where you have somewhere where the central authority is not so trusted and where you have a, in many ways a kind of divided state and a, and a division between the state and some parts of the population uh, and you have such severe uh, pressure on agriculture in particular so people are hungry and thirsty from very basic needs there's, there's nowhere else really to go in that case so i think i mean clearly it is climate change related but it's that's not the only part of the of the story um, right so so it's, it's a fascinating way in in a way to look at leadership and climate change through the migration patterns and also what you were noticing around that and I'm also very interested in, in the response that you found in students on your MBA program, mm. because we ran once a, a, a communication module for an MBA, and it was like a stellar, we thought a stellar kind of communications module, and it was about purpose and communication with empathy and presence and voice work. I mean, many things that were kind of fascinating, we thought it a, a great communications uh, piece for a week. And then at the end of it, some of the students on the course, they said, well, this is all very well, but what we really want to know is how can we go and ask for a pay rise and get a yes? <laughs> so I'm curious what the response has been from the students on MBAs about the kind of one planet focus that you've been bringing and what you're, what, how's all that gone for you? And for oh, them? Well, the, I mean, the one planet MBA uh, survived for, I think, seven years and then was closed down at Exeter. Um, and uh, I think the reasons are you know, as much to do with internal institutional politics as anything else, but also it's true that it, it failed to uh, act as a kind of magic bullet for recruitment, that, uh, that students or potential students were, many of them were really interested in the program in the idea and committed to it, but they were not sure that employers would see them see in the same way. And to you know, take a break out of your career to stop and often at a time when you've got a lot of demands and you've got probably a new family or you're looking for buying a house and all those things, um, people can't afford to take something that's going to uh, be a higher than average risk in terms of future employment. And maybe say, people, maybe, say, say, maybe you say more about what the risk is, because so instead, instead of people feeling that they were going to be ahead of the curve, mm -hmm. they felt that they were diminishing their career prospects. They did, and we didn't. We didn't put in enough effort, or maybe we did, but we just weren't successful in getting sufficient number of employers interested in saying, "Yeah, I would really like to hire people with a One Planet MBA. That's who we need to employ." And how did how did you feel about that? Because that's very kind of depressing, isn't it? Well, I think. Uh, no, I felt, I felt depressed and, and uh, angry and let down in some ways by uh, partners and colleagues and that, but also, um, uh, you know, I, the world has changed a lot in the last couple of years. And uh, we started that program in 2010. And in those first few years, uh, still, you know, an interest in sustainability was seen as a sort of corporate social responsibility sort of not core but not core business kind of concern i mean you know the simple answer would be to say we were 10 years ahead of our time uh, from that 
point of view. Right. So do you think it's ripe to like if, if and I'm not saying you're going to do this as an initiative again, but if, if that kind of initiative were born now, you feel there'd be a different response? I would hope somebody listening to this podcast will say, let's have another go. I'm up for it. Uh, we, we set up an organization called One Planet Education Networks, Open, which uh, is a, includes a sort of fellowship of people who are involved with that initiative and who have been supporters of it and back it. And we're, we're kind of ready to have another go at it with all the lessons that we learned from that. And, and Great. Different environment. So if we were now to broaden the comment, I wish you luck with that also. Maybe somebody will pick it up from the podcast. But if, if you were to, if we were to broaden this conversation now into leadership in general, like at this time, what are you noticing in, kind of, in terms of kind of trends in leaders? Who are the early adopters or maybe relatively late adopters, but in these terms, kind of early adopters of what's needed around the climate emergency? Where are you seeing leadership emerging that's that's got the, the breadth of understanding, the courage, the commitment to make the decisions that are needed now? Um, I think, uh, I, I think I could take a couple of, kind of, couple of steps back um, and locate my, my answer in uh, the, the sort of starting point for the deep adaptation uh, movement and sets of papers, which, uh, I think has been quite helpful in setting out um, at the, at, you know, let's say a you know, basic starting point was that and the, the, the kind of catchphrase is that you know, collapse is inevitable, catastrophe is likely and extinction is possible. And it's, it's kind of dramatic and it's a, perhaps a little bit neat, but uh, the key point is the first one that collapse is inevitable. And I think um, this this has been a, a topic I've been studying and looking at for a long time, thinking about how the process of cultural collapse and how people respond to that. Um, in many cases, when cultures do collapse, it's, it's usually because of a combination of environmental factors and uh, um, an invasion and colonial colonization. Um, there are, uh, well, there, there are quite a few kind of patterns that become recognizable when you look across. Uh, so, I, so, and I'll come back to those in a minute. Um, I think the, the uh, question of whether collapse is understood to be a sudden and catastrophic event or series of events that all happen within a few months of each other. Um, some people say is one thing. Another is if it's a kind of in, intense and continuous, but kind of gradual collapse. <laughs> um, and uh, some some commentators may feel, perhaps with good reason, that we may be in that kind of process at the moment in terms of the collapse of uh, trust and confidence in. It long-lived institutions and in uh, authorities, structures, and processes by which we, we give legitimacy to inequalities of power. Um, so, it, so, so in that sort of long-run collapse idea, maybe it's happening already. Um, uh, and 
and the responses to the, to this, whether it's a, whether it's a long run slow collapse or uh, or a sudden collapse, they are perhaps rather different. Um, if if we think about uh, the UK, Northern Europe, the US, Australia, um, uh, most of uh, most of the let's say the northern hemisphere by and large. Uh, you, you could probably say that, that we are in a process of certainly significant change and, and um, a kind of shaking, maybe some of the bricks are falling out of the houses of, of these institutions. Um, and perhaps there are opportunities to mitigate that collapse uh, in the face of and alongside the steps we take to adapt to uh, changes in the climate which are uh, you know, amongst the many pressures on these structures these social structures and the that kind of response uh, is response not to a crisis but to a kind of long run process and the leadership of that is primarily to do with uh what i what i call revelation it's about kind of revealing the processes that we're caught up in so it's, in other words, it's understanding what's happening. And, right, beautiful. And who is doing that? And I think we see that uh, uh, very visibly done by uh, movements like Extinction Rebellion, uh, who are said, creating urgent events to kind of open our, open our eyes to what's happening. And really the core... Um, uh, a message and the and sort of the clarion call of extinction rebellion is recognize the truth of this right um and the and the uh, and then it's you know recognize it's, it's this is happening recognize we need to do something about it and let's start talking in a realistic way the citizens assemblies about it so so i think this is one example of a of a of a, of a, of a of an assertion that the way the kind of leadership that's needed is leadership that helps us really understand what we're in the situation we're in um, there is a different kind of response which is uh, perhaps more likely to arise in a rapidly critical kind of situation uh, when things literally fall apart around us um, which is a desire a, a profound and immediate desire for salvation and and this is not absent at, at the present i have to say uh, it, it, even in this relatively slow run process we're in now um uh and and the the kind of response for salvation is it, it's not something like i need to understand what i'm caught up in which is likely to be very complex and no simple answers and so on uh, it's not it's just take me out of it take me out of it and that might be uh done by scapegoating by look get rid of the people who carry or whoever it is whatever forces it is that carry the problem here yeah. and these might be uh, obviously often people look at immigrants and we see that in the us and the uk and across northern europe and many in australia and many other places um uh, it might be people who are wrong thinking in various ways it's it's the democrats or it's the republicans or whatever um it 
uh, and it so might. Paint, so, we, so would you say we paint people or a group of people as other, and then we say we don't want to have anything to do with them, and they're the problem. And if we can just get rid of them, then we're going to be fine. Yeah, yeah. This, the, you know, this it's a kind of simple, simple answer. I mean, you know, like, like just like the idea that um, you know the the financial crash was brought around about by a few bad apples, as it were. There's a few individuals who misbehave, but basically things are okay well they're not. so it's a refusal to look at the systemic nature of this and the complexity of it yeah yeah right. and of course you know we, we i'm conscious of my own response to this is that at the moment i have the luxury to carry on day by day reasonably sure that the shops will be open and be full there'll be food there this week and next week and i can think about the complexity of the circumstances we're in whereas if suddenly there weren't any of those things i might also be calling for yeah. heaven's sake sort it out somebody sort it out um which which as i say might be about scapegoating those who, who, who i want to blame for the situation or seeking a strong leader the somebody sorted out is seeking uh, rather than revelation, just seeking a, a salvation, somebody, a, a kind of command response, somebody take control. I mean, do you think, just to follow that for a moment, because some of the critiques of, I have a lot of time, as many people on these podcasts do for Extinction Rebellion, but one of the criticisms that I've heard levied, well, there are two principal ones. One is, one is the notion of panic. Like there's a kind of, we need to panic. And actually often when people panic, you don't really innovate and get creative. You just get frightened. So there's a question about that. But also in what you're saying about the call for strong leadership, like because a lot of it is focused on the need for government to act, like why, when will you wake up and do something? Some people that I've spoken to say, well, it's a bit disempowering because it's kind of, we're, we're basically going to end up with a kind of authoritarian dictatorship. Maybe it's, it's, maybe it will come under a guise of being enlightened, but actually, you know, we're giving away our power and asking everybody else to solve it for us. So how do you bring those two together? It's where kind of revelation and salvation meet a little bit. Yeah, um, well, the, I mean that that terminology. I'm, I'm kind of borrowing from a, a guy called Gordon Lawrence, who who wrote a paper about um, what he called the politics of salvation and the politics of revelation. Uh, he was really talking about the relationship between clients and consultants. Um, but I, I think by talking about these as po as politics, it's quite helpful because you're talking about power relations and how those get structured and um uh you know I, I i can't say i don't have enough you know knowledge to to say whether uh, extinction rebellion and and other movements like those are you know, primarily are, are really kind of sunk by the these two features that you describe uh, but, I, but my sense is that the politics of extinction rebellion is very lively and that the distribution of power and the problematization of power and influence is very live and debated and contested and and i think where uh, where that happens it really is a good sign <laughs> yeah um, and and people are in my experience practicing that all, all the time um, no i i like that yeah I, I agree with that and i'm just to follow this revelation strand because you said that's the kind of this is showing the world what is actually happening do you feel or do you are you aware of companies businesses leaders who are also doing that like this is also about transparency in your supply chain this is where we source our 
our energy from. This is disclosure platforms saying, you know, we're disclosing our use of water and forests. And, you know, that's part of the movement, right? Is, is, to, is to disclose and be transparent as a company. And I'm wondering if you know, of, of, if you feel like that's, that's grabbing, gathering momentum or you also feel that there are particular individuals in that space that you think are doing a good job on the revelation front. Mm. Yes, I think, I think in a sense it's kind of revealing their practices and their inside works. There are, there's, there's some great, great stuff happening. I, mean, I think it's Marks and Spencer just announced this, this week, was it, that they're, uh, that they're Going to publish openly all their sourcing um, for, for everything they do, which and um, and then you've got you know, people like EasyJet who have been you know, unilaterally saying they're going to offset all their uh, flight, the carbon produced from all their flying operations, um, and and saying, look, we know this isn't good enough. We know that that, that we're still right. flying, we're still but it's, it's we've got to start here, and this is right. what we can do. And uh, you know, these just I don't think this would have happened a couple of years ago. And so KLM apparently ask you, they question you if you really want to fly. Like, when you, yeah, there's, there's places where they, firstly, they also link to, to train journeys. So kind of when you arrive, you can also travel by train. But on the shorter haul flights, they're saying, do you really want to fly or can you, can you take a train? Yeah. And that's interesting for an airline to do that. Definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. So these things are starting. Um, I, I think I think by, by revelation, I, I'm, I'm talking not only about kind of revealing the inner workings about transparency in that way, I'm talking about um, uh, processes. Uh, uh, well, well, it that, that what leadership is, is a leadership in understanding. Someone might say, well, you would say that, you're an academic, you know, but, but nonetheless, I think that's, I think it is important. And I think that's being done by um, uh, all sorts of people. Um, uh, so, um, I, but I, but I, of course, I, what I also wanted to say is I don't think that these exist, as it were, as two separate watertight categories. Um, that you know, amongst those of us, in a way, myself included, when I wanted to set up the One Planet MBA, that was on one hand a sense of saying, look, if we if we if we look at our business, our activity like this, as if. Um, we have only one planet and, and, and our, do our assumptions hold on to that. Uh, that? That is a sort of question about saying, well, this will reveal to us what we're doing and help us to do things differently and think and adapt to it. But I did also get very much into the politics of thinking, and this is going to save the world. It's going to save business education. It's going to, you know, it, it, I, there was a sort of salvationist uh, uh, timbre to my own communications and choices and work about that right right and um, so I think it's a useful distinction to make but not to be too uh, categorical about it no I like it a lot I think it's a very helpful framing and maybe we can also then bridge a bit into your other work around spirituality in times of collapse because you, you've talked about the deep adaptation work and you know the, the collapse is inevitable so and, and i'm also curious whether you brought spirituality at all into your one planet mba or if you were to recast a one planet mba now would, would it have a spiritual dimension to it maybe you could just talk to us a bit about that and and how you work with that and how what the response is to spirituality in times of collapse um well um 
so, so I think I think all MBAs, or let's say all uh, sort of post-experience, mid-career master's programs, are in any case dealing with, to some extent, people's search for meaning or for a new future, for new possibilities, new opportunities, which are all ways of expressing some aspect of searching for something a bit beyond. Um, so I, I think I don't want to, 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 to hone specifically on, on that MBA, but, um, uh, but clearly the, uh, the question, as I think it's coming to us now about this much more, is uh, that it seems to be much more disturbing to contemplate the collapse of our whole society, our culture, and even extinction of our species than it is to contemplate as individuals mortality. That it, it, it's pretty sobering to think about one's own mortality. And, but it's, and also in some ways it's, um, it can be very rewarding and thought provoking and deepening uh, speaking from, from personal experience. So I presume it is for many other people as well. Um, and and thinking about one's own mortality has been uh, a you know, fundamental sort of route into and through what we think of as spirituality in many many traditions. Um, and and this is to do with the what we might call the more sort of inductive approaches of perhaps Buddhism and um, Stoicism and so on, as well as the more deductive. Uh, 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 sort of uh, doctrines in, in, around uh, written religions of the book, I think. But um, uh, but in, in addition to, um, to to sort of thinking about one's own mortality, there's there's also a kind of reassuring confidence that as I can become more uh, uh, appreciative and understanding, become wiser about what really counts in life that is somehow contributing to future generations to my culture being having a kind of weightiness a substance uh, thoughtfulness a profundity a wisdom um, but if i think no there's going to be nobody there to hold that there isn't going to be another generation that really is an abyss And I, th I think the, the spirituality, if there is such a thing around cultural extinction, is really problematic. Uh, I, I don't know what, what we do about it, uh, but I really want to discover. What do you mean when you say spirituality around cultural extinction is problematic? What, what's... Well, what I mean is, I'm, I'm not sure we have uh, a kind of cultural, well, I don't think we have a, um, a way of, well, I mean, maybe there are ways of thinking and caring for, or for coming to a position where, uh, of complete non-attachment to the, the, the future of 
right. even right. of the doctrines of non-attachment themselves. Um, and and I, I can understand, I, I mean, I certainly haven't reached that level in my own meditation to really know that for sure. And I can understand theoretically that uh, you know, profound meditative insight and, and, um, uh, and enlightenment may lead to that kind of uh, disinterestedness in, in, in... Yeah, I understand the territory. And I'm also curious whether the, the work you do on spirituality in times of collapse would also include the spirituality that speaks to the interconnectedness of everything. That we're not sort of separate entities over here. So I'm having my kind of grieving process and my attachments and my my personal experience, and you're having something over there. But actually, that part of what we need to do is 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 sense the unified field out of which we are all emerging. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think so. I, th I think one um, uh, one of the papers I did, I worked quite a lot with uh, Patrick Curry's uh, ecocentric ethics, which I think speaks to that. It spoke to me uh, anyway about that. Very much and then and, and uh, um, connecting uh, Richard Powers's book Overstory, which speaks for the knowledge in trees and forests and and right. and, and reframes you know that it kind of makes the minuteness of human knowledge in relation to what's needed in order to live uh, very um, evocatively for me. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, uh, the, the endings, what it means is that the ending of the human story is no end. It is, it is, it's not an ending, but it's, um, but it's, a it's, it's a wiping clear of meaning. In that sense, I, well, anyway, that, that's. I don't, yeah, I, don't, I, don't really, I don't really know how to say it, or how to think it, or even. But I'm learning how to th how to think and perceive in that domain. Yeah, and what I'm feeling is, and, and sensing in in you and in this dialogue is, it's also about feeling it. Like maybe we don't have all the words for it and all the concepts for it, but to feel and dare to kind of look and feel the possibility of these endings that you describe. That's part of the journey also. And that's part of what we need in leaders is the capacity to really feel deeply and not just have kind of quick fix solutions in the mind, but actually to feel it in the heart and body. Well, maybe. I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm not that sure that has anything to do with leadership. Um, I think that leadership is probably so caught up with power and influence on one hand, but also the expectations and requirements of others of us of those who speak for us or lead us or take command or take or interpret and so on are are, are about a different set of things to spiritual things so that opens up a whole conversation we could have another hour looking at at, at, at that topic but i'm, I'm well, well, I, let me let me let me put it very very yeah. simply I, I, did, I did a paper on this a few years back with my colleague peter case and we concluded in in that uh, this was looking at uh, leadership and spirituality and um looking at the start off looking at claims that, that you know more spiritual awareness spiritual practice makes people better leaders um, 
and that the, the fact if they're better leaders you'll see their organizations being more healthy and sound and more productive and so on and a number of you know many many uh, models experiments and so on have been done and all this has been reporting reported I, I won't go into it all now but the conclusion of our paper really was that you can look at the implied instrumentalism in that argument in a number of ways because the, the instrumentalism is says that spirituality is good because it's a good tool in making us better leaders and that being better leaders is good because it makes our organizations more productive or healthy or whatever and uh, we said that yes you know there, there are some people who are arguing that and there's some evidence in some framings that, 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 that spirituality is a, is a valid instrument in increased productivity whatever it is you're trying to produce there's another argument which says no look going to work and facing all the trials and tribulations the temptations um, of work wealth and power and so on is good for your spiritual journey work is instrumental in your spiritual life and that's the primary thing that's most interesting so that's uh and you know the conclusion is many people have this experience that look this work is not no longer helping me in my spiritual journey it's just getting me down or it's too simple it's not challenging enough or it's whatever taking too much of my energy i'll go and do something else um so that's an instrumental argument also in relation to spirituality um but then there's another possibility that you know what spirituality is in spiritual life spirit connecting spirit is good in itself it's got nothing to do with work or its goodness is nothing to do with work and similarly leading and taking up a role and leading initiatives leading organizations leading countries policy whatever is a thing is a, is, is a job of work to do uh, but intrinsically it's got nothing to do with spirituality Well, I guess what, I mean, let's say we could have a long conversation about that, but I guess what, what where I sit is to feel that spirituality is, is and we could have a long conversation about what we mean by spirituality, but some kind of acknowledgement of the deeper rivers that, that, that run in us and the source of our own power and agency, acknowledging that just, just brings me alive as a human being in a way that if I'm not aware of that, it doesn't. And that will infuse every aspect of my life partner, lover, father, leader, operative on a work assembly line, like whatever it is I'm doing, that will be infused with that awareness or not, depending whether I carry that awareness or not. So that's what, that's what I mean. So if people have a kind of a, a, an awareness of that and a sense of that, then they will bring that into any aspect of their life, including leadership. Yeah, they might. They might. But, that, but, that, but that's not what justifies leadership, and so 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 that's not what justifies spirituality. Sorry, no, not at all. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And um, uh, and I th I think if you, well, my challenge to you would be to really contemplate, stop and think about it. You know, if if the if that sense of spirituality and connectedness was really primary, the most important thing, would you really want to get caught up in leadership? Well, it depends what your calling is. 
maybe and i and i'm what i'm talking about is a, is a fully embodied spirituality it's not a kind of concept of spirituality oh, i meditate an hour a day therefore i'm going to be a better person no it's saying maybe i have a spiritual awareness and a practice but is it embodied in my in every cell of my being and yeah. then that will also inform what my calling is maybe my calling is to be a leader maybe it's to be a dancer maybe it's to be a painter maybe it's to be on the front line with extinction rebellion i'll know my calling because i'm more awake to to what i need to do in the world maybe yeah, maybe. So we could have a... Anyway, I like the challenge. I, I enjoy this part of our, our dialogue also. Mm -hmm. And maybe we can close by just bringing us back in a way to, to some of the work you've also been doing with organizations and just bring it back to the work you do with the Forward Institute. And, may, and just and in a way to weave these strands together, like the, M, the One Planet MBA, the work on spirituality that you do. What, what finds its way into the work of the Forward Institute? So the Forward Institute was uh, set up um, in, I think, 2015, 2015-16, uh, uh, to uh, be, a, a, be a forum in which people who have quite significant roles and likely to have more significant sort of senior roles in big organisations across the British establishment. It's a UK-centric organisation devised to address what was seen at the time as a kind of malaise uh, in the establishment, which was a uh, inward lookingness in different organizations, in, in specific organizations and sectors, so that uh, to be very particular about it, the banking crisis sh showed a lot of situations in which uh, people working in the financial services industry looked to others in the financial industry in order to judge what's good or right or acceptable behavior with very little cognizance or, or value given to the systemic effects and whether this was considered legitimate more broadly and the effects it had on long-term trust and optimism about the system and the world we're in and um and so it's, so, it's, so it's really designed specifically to address that and address that cadre of people of course bringing more responsibility into leadership and into our society and bringing um, uh, more humane priorities and so on uh, and addressing the key problems around inequality and climate change and resource depletion and all those things is not dependent only on that rather elite group of senior people in those organizations and the Ford Institute can't do everything uh, but part of a process of I don't know reform rejuvenation in some ways um, so you find there's there's significant movement in the people that you work with through the Institute uh, I, well I think so uh, I mean some people speak about uh, some of the people who participated in it speak about it as uh, yeah sort of revelatory in, in some some way uh, both in the sort of gentle way I've been describing it perhaps even more people can put their finger on a particular conversation or something that help that they, they feel they would be unlikely to have had in their normal life and, right. and um, I think that the real uh, sort of import of it is emerging as we now have close to 300 uh, fellows as we call them uh, across the, the establishment who have spent significant time thinking about the systemic aspects and thinking about what really matters and what counts and what their where their legitimacy 
comes from and the, and, and the expectations they put on others and all those things. And we're beginning to see some uh, uh, really quite, quite uh, interesting, important things happening in the organizations for which they work around climate change, mental health, balance, you know, life balance priorities, decency in all sorts of ways. Um, and when when now and the process are beginning to think well you know not only as a senior manager of tesco or the bank of england or cabinet office or whatever uh uh but as citizens with citizens of the uk with significant amount of influence uh, and not only personal influence, but influence through your networks, including perhaps especially this network. What as citizens ought we be thinking about and trying to do and promote and make happen? Um, and I, and I, I think it's, uh, as I said, it's a, it's a very valuable and important part of uh, a, a, a response within, as I say, the politics of revelation. You know? Yeah, that's great, Jonathan. Thank you. And maybe I'll just give you the last word to to um, imagine yourself because we're having this conversation at the time that the COP25 is happening in Madrid. And if you were there and you had the platform for one minute, two minutes to speak to the leaders who are gathered there, what would you, what would there be a, a message you might want to give them? What would you say to them? Um, I would say something like, you know, this is. Uh, an emerging emergency and that the responses must be uh, it, but prior, now there's an opportunity for responses to be really uh, a leadership that appreciates and helps us to understand and tackle and deal with complexity and systemic complexity which is when people say we've got time to do things that's what they mean um if we don't do that we're gonna have to move to other kinds of leadership which is much more to do with command and auto autocratic responses at that at that level and of course at community level i'm going off now what i'd be i have in my 30 seconds in front of the uh, at community level a, a lot will depend on our ability to sustain local institutions and governance, communities and trust, in order in some cases to resist and at least to keep contesting that more centralized authority. Yeah, great message. Thank you so much. And thank you for this time. I really enjoyed our conversation a lot. I found it very kind of rich and, and, and multidimensional. So thank you for your time. Thank you for the work you're doing in the world. And we wish you every success with that. And I'm sure our paths will cross again in the future, Jonathan. I very much hope so. Thank you very much.